Okay, we're on. Hi, this is Michael Waits. Today we are joined by Dan Draper, the CEO and founder at Cypher Stash. Dan, thank you so much for coming on the show. How are you doing? No worries, Michael. Yeah, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Oh, can you see the look on my face? Like just the happiness that I have for just how great you sound? <laughs> I can, yes. But you can see it though, right? I can actually see it, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I just love when people have great sound. Anyway, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. And before we get to the non-sound part of this conversation, <laughs> can we give our listeners a little bit of your background for some context? Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, I am a I am a microphone aficionado, so there's that, I suppose. Um, <laughs> uh, as you can tell by the accent, um, I'm I'm an Australian. Um, I, I live in Sydney. I, I grew up in uh, in South Australia in a city called Adelaide, which oh, nice. I call a country town, but you know, it's a million people. It's a nice place to live. My wife and I moved to Sydney about ten years ago. I'm a a software engineer, I guess, by by training. People ask me what I am or what I do, and I struggle with that question because I have a lot of interest and a lot of things that I like to do. But software engineering, I guess, was my my kind of core passion and is the foundation of my career. And uh, I guess um, developed over the last half decade or so a particular interest in cybersecurity and encryption. I did a small stint at the Australian government, and I learned a lot from doing that in, in, in some ways also that I didn't necessarily want to work for the government, <laughs> but I learned a great deal about data security and, uh, and how governments and large organizations think about it. And so that, that passion has, has developed to the extent now that I'm went and created my own business. Were you one of, were you one of these kids that like were begging your parents for a computer? Do you know what I mean? Or the, if there was yes. one or always already <laughs> around, you're just like start to program it and your parents were like, what's Dan doing upstairs kind of thing. Totally. Yeah. So it's funny, actually, my, my family was never particularly wealthy. Been there. We didn't have a computer for a while. Yeah. Um, my first computer actually was a, a second hand, uh, was a BBC micro, uh, which was old even when I got it. Um, it was like a, a, a leftover from the, the local school when they, uh, they were selling their old computers and upgrading. So I think I paid 40 bucks for it. Nice. Um, <laughs> 40 Australian dollars. What was the language that you were programming in or what was the operating system? Do you remember? Because this is so yeah. interesting for me. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, it was called BBC Basic, which was the, it. so the, the BBC Micro was created by, the, you know, the BBC. Yep. Uh, and so they created their own flavor of, of basic, basic called BBC Basic. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Basic was one of the first languages that I learned as well. I'll never forget like that first time you type something in to that first line, second line, loop back to it. And then it just like prints it on the screen. And you're like, okay, I think you right? got me. It's so satisfying. And I think what blew me away, um, well, it didn't blow me away so much at the time because there was no, I didn't know anything different, but looking back on it and telling, telling my colleagues and friends, you know, when I learned to code, I learned from a book that was sat on the decks on the desk yeah. next to me. There was yep. no internet. There was no. You know, <laughs> just look it up. Just cut right. and paste, right? There was none right. of that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I learned how to program off a TRS-80, which you probably don't even know what that means. TRS stands for Tandy Radio Shack. And they made this ah. computer that had a tape deck connected to it because they were more famous for tape recorders and actually for like little individual electronic components. And they had those at the school that I attended. Actually, the previous school had this gigantic box 
that had terminals connected to it and only had like little green, you know, literally looked like the matrix was happening in our school kind of thing. Nice. Nice. Yeah, been at this for a while. <laughs> what was it like working for the government? It was, it was interesting. I actually, you know, I, I, I joke about my time working for the government, but I actually really enjoyed it. There were, there were definitely some big challenges and yeah. it wasn't necessarily what I wanted to do. So there's a little bit of a story as to, to how I got into to government work. I, I was working for a startup in, in New York city. I uh, had been working with them for about nine months. They were, they were doing what they called the, um, the Netflix for private aviation. They were doing unlimited flights between New York and Boston. I think it was like for two and a half grand a month. It was a really fun and cool business to be a part of, but it turns out flying jets isn't very cheap. <laughs> uh, and unfortunately, the business, um, it, you know, they went into Chapter 11. And, what were you doing? Uh, they what couldn't you, make it work. What were you doing in the States, though? Like, how did that happen? Oh, there's a whole story there too. How how long have we got? <laughs> as much time. So as were, no, but I'm curious how this how this like how all this develops, right? Because you can't mm. get to today without understanding what you did yesterday, in a way, right? But like, right, right. How did you get to that? There was a few little hops. It was an interesting story. So I I was um, when when I when I first moved to Sydney, I was freelancing for a while. Like yep. I I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, and so did some you know programming for people and consulting. And I was doing some consulting on a on a platform. I, I think they're still around. I haven't I haven't actually looked. It's called Code Mentor. Okay. So Code Mentor is basically people that are struggling with a technical problem or learning how to code will jump on the platform, try to find a mentor, and you know, basically charge by the hour for Kinda the time. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, it was neat. Um, and so I I met met a guy on there called Drew. Uh, I'm still friends with Drew to this day. And in fact, he even works now at Cyphestash. I love it. Um, but uh, he was working in New York for this company uh, called Beacon, and he was—he needed some help. He was struggling with some problems that he was working on, and so he and I started working together on this platform, Code Mentor. And after a few months, he said to me, "Hey, you've mentioned you're freelancing, right? You're doing some consultation. Do you want to do you want to do some work for Beacon? We need some more help." It's like, yeah, sure. I mean, Sydney to New York is a is a terrible time zone difference yeah. um so I, I did a lot of late nights but i but i i got to know the team i really enjoyed it and so eventually they said hey do you want to come to new york and be our chief technical officer wow I'm like, i just gotta yeah. chill seriously thinking let's about do it, it. <laughs> but but this is this is one of the coolest things in the world right and i say this about myself in some in some context a lot like the likelihood that a kid from adelaide right would end up working for a startup in new york is close to zero particularly when you were a kid right Right. But that happened. And I think part of the reason why that happens is because of all this connectivity. Anyway, I just think that's super cool. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, 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 absolutely. The internet changed everything. And I don't think people fully appreciate just how much sometimes. Not until they hear that yeah. story. Yeah. Sorry, go yeah. ahead. So you went to New no, York. No, that's okay. Yeah. So we we um, we wrote all of the software for the, you know, the the booking and the, and the flight operations and the check-in app. And, you know, it was some interesting tech. And I, I actually came back to Australia to to get married to my now wife. Um, and while I was home, the uh, they basically let everybody go. They run yep. out of money. I knew things, I knew we were flying, well, you know, sailing close to the wind, but I didn't realize. <laughs> you could say flying, it was good though. How, how yeah, exactly. Yeah, flying a little, too, a little too close to the sun, but go ahead. Exactly, yeah, so that didn't work out. And so I kind of just took a step back, licked my wounds a little bit and tried to work out what next. And I, I reached out to some of my friends 
and I have lots of friends in tech in, in Sydney and said, hey, what, what's, uh, who's hiring? What's going on? And I heard about this new, new organization called the Digital Transformation Agency, which was a, um, originally a, a, a group within the Australian government set up by the um, then communication minister, Malcolm Turnbull, who went on to become prime minister. Prime minister and, yeah. Yeah, was, you know, very unceremoniously uh, kicked out as well. So that was a whole saga. But he, he set up the, the, the DTA. And his whole kind of goal with the DTA was to bring in folks from startups, non-public servants, to help, you know, build a, a digital transformation unit within the government, help, help public servants understand how to build, you know, startup-like products right. within the government. And uh, I learned so much. I, I learned about, you know, what they call machinery of government. I learned about cybersecurity, obviously, like I mentioned. I, um, I got to present to some of the most senior technology people in the country, but I also learned a lot of, you know, there was a lot of challenging things within that role and within that, that department as well. And, uh, it was highly politicized. Um, yeah, for sure. and I think a lot of us got caught up in the middle of that. Uh, so it was, it was quite, quite a challenging time, but, but I, I look back on it now fondly. Are there things sorry, that you learned about the way governments look at security digital security, cybersecurity, I won't say that surprised you, but that informed the way you think about it differently? Definitely. Yeah. I think, you know, I, I, there, there's some anecdotes there that I think are interesting. So I remember one, one time in particular, I uh, was working with a team, we built an application um, and the government actually, are, what, one thing they are very, very good at is bringing in security people to, you know, do internal audits and, and penetration testing, not just not just once you've released a bit of code, right. which is you know very often how we think of it, but actually throughout the whole process. Yeah. And I remember this this one guy. I won't I won't mention his name. He's he was uh, he's the kind of guy you won't find on LinkedIn or the internet. You know, he's, <laughs> he lives on a farm somewhere in rural New South Wales in Australia. On purpose. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. I'll tell you a story um, in a second, but go ahead. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> he he kind of pulled me aside and um, said uh, one morning when I came into the office, he said, uh, Hey, can you, can you grab the team? I just want to show them what I've discovered. You know, he's been poking around and looking for problems and he managed to exfiltrate the admin password for this application that we'd built. Wow. And I'm like, Holy shit, man. How did you do that? Yeah. Uh, and, and he explained to us how he did it and he sort of unpacked all of the, the approaches and, and things he'd taken. And it was such a small thing that none of us really, really thought could be a, an attack vector or could right. be a possible uh, way to get the data. And right. uh, so I think that whole experience was the beginning of my journey to, to start to think differently about how we build applications. But it's, you think about what, what a gov why a government does that. They have the most to lose, really. You know, they are probably going to be the ones that are most targeted. We, we talk about cybercrime and we talk about, government and state actors um so they take cybersecurity very very seriously and i learned so much through that process i think there's so much stuff going on in the world that most people don't know is happening and don't understand like i think there are men and women walking the streets right now that are doing things that most people would it would blow their minds if they knew they were doing it i was in tokyo you know for years and you know, went out with a buddy of mine one night with a few other friends with this guy and his wife. This other guy was an American guy. 
And, you know, we went into this bar at like 11 o'clock at night. No big deal. Nothing strange. We weren't doing anything weird. And a scuffle broke out at the bar. And let's just call this guy Jim. I don't honestly don't remember his name at all. And yeah, it was a minor scuffle. So it wasn't like fists were flying and all that other stuff. But that dude just vaporized. And I remember later, because I was concerned, so I said to my other buddy, I was like, hey, Tim, what happened to Jim? And he just looked at me and he goes, Jim doesn't exist. Well, But it reminds me of this guy you're talking about on the farm, right? Because that guy lives on a farm probably purposely, so he doesn't run into people on a day-to-day basis because the work that he's doing is so sophisticated and maybe so secret that he doesn't want the rest of the world to know about it. And the fewer interactions he has with regular people, the less likely he is to, you know, spill it over a cup of tea, basically. But it was pretty interesting that, that this guy literally did not exist. And to be fair, I think that the name that I was given for this guy probably wasn't even true. And I think that happens a lot more than people expect because it happened to me and I'm nobody. Do you know what I mean? Totally. Yeah. And yeah, it changed, I do. The, I know it exactly changed the way I, mean. I thought yeah. about governments and stuff like that. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. No, I, w- I was just going to say one of the, one of the sort of a long process. I intru- I got introduced to one person and he introduced me to another. And yeah. one thing led to another. And eventually I got invited to a party one Saturday night out, out in the suburbs of, of Sydney. And um, this was, I kind of didn't quite um, wrap my head around this until I got to the party, but it right. was a, it was a hacking crew. Right. Yeah. And so I get to the party and there's, some of them out on the out on the deck having some drinks or you know doing whatever they were doing out there probably probably you know legal things um but then in, inside inside the the house there were two guys this was like one o'clock in the morning sunday early sunday morning right yep. two guys in the house on a computer hunched over looking really quite stressed out and i i didn't really know these guys very well but i i just thought i'd wander over and say hey guys uh what's going on hey going what's 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 going on (laughs) yeah um and it turns out uh they had been working on um a hack you know they they considered themselves ethical hackers and they were white hat working for for yeah for for bounties and not necessarily trying to sell stuff on the dark web or what have you but your listeners may know there are there are four major banks in australia the four the big four we call them and um this, these two guys had managed to, what they described as popping a shell, uh, yeah. for one of the the big banks, and so that basically mean they had full terminal access wow. uh, from their online banking. This was a this was a really really big deal. Yeah, and they were asking me of all people for advice, like, what do we do? Do we go and tell the bank? Do we, you know, we tell the authorities? And they, basically, what they were trying to do was find a way that they could legally get a bounty without being accused of extorting the bank. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> guys, I don't want to part this. But this kind of stuff happens all the time. Now, and obviously, that didn't make the media. They, I don't I don't know what happened to it because I kind of distanced myself from it. But, For sure. You know, there's these kinds of things happen more often than I think um, the average average folks realize. Yeah, and I think the world's changed a lot as well as the as the computer world gets more and more connected. I mean, I'll tell you a super funny story. When we started rolling out Sun, <laughs> Sun workstations, I'm laughing because the company doesn't even exist anymore. I was part of a I was part of a tech team at Morgan Stanley, and we started rolling out Sun um, Spark stations to the trading floor just to make everything back in the day like more modern. 
you know, I went and took a Unix systems administrator class and I started learning a lot about how connectivity worked, right? And I remember, and back then, like, you, you could type, you could literally type in like WashingtonPost.com or NewYorkTimes.com and, and at some point, like, the, this was before someone bought Coca-Cola.com, so you could go do all this stuff, right? Mm. But I remember going to, I think it was Amazon.com and then literally just typing SU, Right and hitting enter, you know what SU is, right? In Unix, super user. So I just wanted oh, to see if that's I could right SU as in yeah 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 of course yeah yeah yeah. So I just wanted to see if I could do it because why not? And I didn't understand like, and I had also read this book called oh come on the rabbit holes. I can't remember what it was called anymore. But but I be, could become super user on Amazon's computers, <laughs> and I remember getting so nervous. I was like, I'm out of here. Because I just telneted it in, right? All I did was do telnet amazon.com. And, and I got in and I just thought, okay, that's scary. And then I'd SU'd and I was like, okay, this is really bad. And then I left. But I'm just saying like that was the level of security back then. Right, right, yeah. I completely get it. And I think that's, in many ways, that's why we have the level of problems that we do now. It's because nobody ever thought about this stuff in the early days, which was the, the furthest thing from everybody's mind. No, and, um, I mean, and when ARPANET and all this stuff started, right, the universities, it was mostly university people, at least in the United States, they didn't feel like people were going to steal stuff from them. As a matter of fact, they built it so that people could share things. And they never considered the fact that, like, okay, we can't have the people at the University of Massachusetts get access to this stuff at NYU. They were just like, how can we have them get access to it in a way that's easy? So when they built all this stuff, they didn't build in the security. But I'm curious, like, if you look at the progression over time, what does it look like now? Do you know what I mean? Because it's got to be a little bit of a mess out there. What does the overall security landscape look like, you mean? Or? Yeah, because, I mean, I know what it looked like back then, but I remember mm. just being so scared when I had super user on somebody, some <laughs> other company's computer, Right. I, I would like to say that it's much better. And I think for the most part, it is much better. We have a, we have a new class of problems, I think, that we generally have to deal with. I mean, you, you'll you probably not be able to get root access to no, machines just do. by typing suit now. No. <laughs> I, I, I would think in, in all but the most uh, exceptional of cases. The, the access control systems in, in modern computers are significantly better. For sure. For sure. But at the same time, the the way that attackers operate and the class of attacks, the sophistication of attacks is significantly higher. You know, they are, they are doing much, much more complicated and cleverer things, smarter things. So simple, simple protections don't do the job anymore. Are those things automated as well? Do you know what I mean? So instead of people just trying to find separate hacks, are they actually writing code to automate and then to iterate the code itself? So using artificial intelligence and machine learning Right to create this massive database of things we've tried, things we haven't tried, and understanding what's worked in other places. So using it in the same way that we'd use it just to kind of personalize your insurance, but to personalize a hack. Does that make sense? Oh, definitely. Absolutely, they're doing that. Yeah. I mean, and even even the good guys are doing that to simulate what the bad guys are doing. Sure. So, you know, for example, there's a, a, a popular tool that a lot of... Um, you know, what you call red teamers, people that are hackers, but are doing it, you know, to try to find the exploits so they can fix them. The tools that they would use, uh, a tool like Metasploit, for example. So Metasploit has basically just got a database of all of the different, you know, what they call CVEs. So so exploits, 
you know, attack vectors that, that could be tried on a system and a, and a researcher might just run all of those different attacks, automate them. The computer's doing most of the work and they're using, using the technology to find those, find those gaps. Hackers are doing exactly the same thing. And frankly, the, the, the hackers are probably even more sophisticated about it. Malware is doing that. Malware is installing itself, replicating itself, actively looking for exploits. If I live in a house, right, that doesn't have a gate around it, it's just on like S Street in Hull, Massachusetts, which frankly is where I used to live. But it's like this simple little street on a side road off of a, off Nantasket Avenue. But if someone just like came and knocked on my door, I wouldn't let him in. And I would definitely peek out the window first. And I'm just thinking about this as we're talking. Do I know that person? I don't know them. Do they look safe? Maybe. But I don't want to buy whatever they're selling. And I may just ignore them, right? And the harder they knock, the maybe more I ignore. And then I call the cops probably, yeah? How do you get people into a mindset where, right? Because I'll, I'll give you a perfect example. Last night, I'm at home working on my computer, doing some production work for like the Asia Tech podcast. And this thing pops up on my screen and it just says, the Mac. It just says Mac, right? So I have a Macintosh. It just says, the Mac wants access to your system. And then it gives me a code number to put in. And I'm just looking at it thinking, this is a really good try. Right? But I, I'm not, and, and I have two other Macs in my, in my apartment, right? So I know I'm not asking for access because there is a remote accessibility there, right? But I know I'm mm -hmm. not doing it. And I'm just thinking, who's doing this? But I'm not letting them in. And then of I course. went and changed some of my security settings to make sure that that type of remote access wasn't possible. But I'm a geek in a way. But again, if someone just knocked on my condo door, I would look out the peephole and look in. I wouldn't just open the door and say, like, how can I help you? How do you get people into this mindset that they know, like regular people? Because that's got to be a big problem, no? Or am I exaggerating this? No, it's not. You're not exaggerating it at all. It's a huge problem. I, I think, you know, it goes back to what we were saying before, that the internet has changed the world because of this increased connectedness. Yeah. And that's both works for for good and for bad. You know, once upon a time you you didn't probably think about scammers or or people trying to hoodwink you very much because, you know, once in a while maybe you're I don't know, maybe you're in a bar and somebody right. tries to to trick you with a card trick or something, you know, it's like uh three card monte on the street that? in New York. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's like I'm not well, going I'm not even going over there. Right, right, exactly. Right. Uh the the problem is that the scope of uh let's call it this the attacks the tricks the scope of the the attacks that that um are are you know that i am potentially vulnerable to has increased not just dramatically it's it's increased by many many orders of magnitude yeah effectively now because i am i am connected to the internet constantly with my phone or yep. my my laptop or even my watch my ring now my ring is internet connected um <laughs> i <laughs> i i am i am exposing myself to essentially the the entire world of people that could potentially take advantage of me and i i think you know in security circles we sometimes we sometimes say that the the most vulnerable part of a system is the person the human yeah and there there needs to be a a an attitudinal shift the way that we think about these problems needs to change it's it's we can't trust people on the internet it's quite it's it's that simple you know what you walk across to the store to buy a coffee or to get your mail or whatever and you run into somebody on the street 
you probably can trust them. Statistically speaking, you can probably trust them. Once in a while, there might be somebody that's trying to trick you. But -hmm. on the internet, because you're interacting with so many people, you're exposed to so many more people, chances are there is a significantly higher number of people that are trying to steal your money or steal your data. Yeah, and in your hometown, though, you you don't run into what I call this proximity problem, right? Because... The, it's the proximity that benefits you in your hometown, right? Because just millions and millions of people cannot come to the coffee shop where you're going to go get some coffee. But on the internet, that coffee shop is accessible to everybody. And that means right. that statistically, more people have access to you. So it's more likely that the, there's a higher number of people that are going to try to scam you. It's probably the same percentage of people, right? But since so many more people have access to it, it's so much higher. But I, I'm interested in this, though. You know, we say this a lot, like once you see something, you can't unsee it. You worked for the government. You, you understand data security and data security analysis and, and all the things that go around it. You've built an entire company. I want to talk a little bit about CypherStash in a second. But you have a ring and a watch that's all connected. <laughs> and you know what's going on. Hmm. Does it change the way you think about using those devices? Do you know what I mean? And do you walk around... Like, in a way, you have a view onto the world that very few people have. You walk around looking at other people going, oh, my God, that person is just so exposed. Do you know what I mean? Because you see what they have and know that they don't know what you know. I do. Yeah, it does does change the way that I interact with the world and with people. Like, as an example, you know, have you ever ever bought a a T-shirt or a sweater or something in in one of those stores and they say, hey, would you like to sign up to our club and get a 5% discount? And then the very next thing they ask you is, oh, I want your phone number. Phone number. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> so no, but I do this when I, I check into a hotel. I do this when I check into a hotel. They're right. like, okay, can you just sign here? Give me your phone number and your email address. And I'm like, I'm happy to sign, but I'm not giving you my phone number and my email address because mm-hmm. I know what you're going to do with it. But most people right. don't know, yeah? Right. And the thing that, I mean, the thing that makes me angry is not that I don't trust the people that I'm giving the phone number to. I want to make, I want to make that clear. I mean, sure. Maybe like we were saying before, there's a percentage of people that maybe do the wrong thing, Yeah. but it's more so the case that I don't know where that number goes once I've given it to that person. Does it go on a database? Does it go on a spreadsheet? Does it sit on somebody's laptop that gets left on the train? Right. (laughs) Yeah. And also how secure is it? Right. Right. But I'm, I'm bothered by the fact that, so the guy who's asking me or the gal that's asking me, they're just doing their job. Like their manager told them to ask for this and for that because it goes into our system and our system then gets to spam them with offers and blah, blah, blah. I get it. Most people don't get it. But I'm disappointed that that company feels like their clients are so stupid or so uninformed that they'll just give away that information for nothing. Does that make mm. sense? That bothers me. Anyway. Yeah, it bothers me too. Yeah, there's um a, a company. It's not no affiliation to to Sifestash, just a, just a, a product I love um, called Mine, and Mine will actually mine uh, the providers in your inbox and and try to give you a footprint, a data footprint of all the different organizations that you've given data to. Yeah, I think my footprint is something like 1,100 companies. So I've given my data to 1,100 companies. And they think that the average is like 300 and inverted commas, power users have given their data to like 2,000 companies. Sure. But then you, you, you look at the stats in, say, in the US, for example. There was a report Forbes published this last year something like 50% of companies in the U.S. are going to have a data breach within the next three years. 
Sure. So I've given my data to 2,000 companies and half of those are going to lose it. I mean, <laughs> we're fighting a losing battle here. But are we? So the question is, what can we do about this? Does that make sense? In other words, what kind of protections can we have? Because I like, again, if you lived in New York in the 1970s, and 1980s, you put four locks on your door. Hmm. And the idea was, if there were if there were three there, the guy who wanted to rob your apartment may just have the patience to go for three. But when he got to the fourth, he'd be like, never mind, I'm going next door. Do you know what I mean? So it, it didn't mean that guy wasn't going to rob somebody. It just meant he wasn't going to rob you because you've annoyed him enough so that he couldn't actually get into your place. But in, again, in the digital world, right, now there are people trying to get into your apartment from all over the world. You can't just have four locks. But what, like, what do we do? I think there's three things. I mean, three, not three individual things, three broad categories of things. Uh, <laughs> Good, because I was going to write down those three things. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. If only it was that simple, huh? Um, I, I think as consumers, as citizens, we generally have to get a lot more uh educated on this stuff yeah. and maybe that maybe that comes through through our schooling or maybe it comes through information from the government what have you but we definitely need to, i think there's a there's a huge scope for improvement in terms of our own kind of security cybersecurity awareness and data awareness i think number 2 it's companies need to do a much better job at this companies yeah. are usually the ones who are the custodians of our data uh governments actually they have breaches too, but they tend to do a much better job than private organizations. So private private companies need to do much better. But then you have to ask yourself, well, what's making companies do a better job? And I mean, I've spoken to to customers or potential customers at SifeStash, and sometimes they'll say, yeah, we know we should we should implement these controls or do these things in order to improve data security, but until the regulator or until the the government isn't is, tells us to do it, we're not going to do it. Why? And so then, well, because it's a lot of them don't see it as as good for business. I mean, it's sort of like when you look at some organizations that end up paying fines for doing the wrong thing. Yeah. Sometimes it's actually cheaper, you know, cheaper just to pay the fine and get on with get on with things. Right? Did someone so say think, Deutsche Bank or? Anything? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, history is littered with examples, right? <laughs> Um, Deutsche is probably the, the biggest one, but anyway, go ahead. Right, yeah. So I mean, the 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 last the last kind of pillar in those three is is legislation, yeah. and I and I'm I don't like leaning on that. I'm I'm probably the last person that would like to lean on something like legislation and regulation, but I I see it as the only way of of really meaningfully moving the needle on this. Yeah, I mean, look, I don't want to go down this rabbit hole, but like. You know, capitalism says that you'll do whatever you can do to make the most profit. Like, that's just what it says. And until you get regulated to stop letting all of your data get stolen, you're just not going to do it because it has a cost associated with it. And you're right. If the cost of not doing it is less than the cost of doing it, even if there's a fine or the data breach or the reputational breach costs you some kind of business, somebody out there is doing the calculus that says, never mind. Right. I'm just not going to Having do said it. that, having said that, I think part of the other part of that issue is that businesses are actually wrong about how much they think it's going to cost them. Agreed completely. It's, it's, it's probably going to cost them significantly more than they think it's going to cost them, ignoring regulators or ignoring fines, what have you. You know, IBM published a, a report. They, they do this annual report, actually. They call it the state of a, uh, the, the cost of a data breach. And I think the last report which came out last year, 2021, the cost of a single breached record 
was 180 US dollars to the business. So, right, but let's that say that adds you up have, really fast. Yeah, but I was going to say so if you have 20 million data records stolen, it's 3.6 billion dollars. Do I have that right? right. Uh, I didn't do the math fast enough in my head, but it sounds right. Yeah. Well, I know it's not 360,000. <laughs> and I know it's not 360 million because there's an extra there's an extra zero there. So, it's a lot of money. Anyway, it's a it's a big number. So, we didn't talk about this yet, but what does Cypher Stash do? Right. So, Cypher Stash is a product ostensibly for developers and for for people that are building uh, applications that store sensitive data. And the way that we think of it is one of the most powerful ways to protect data, some of the data that we've just been talking about, personal yep. data, healthcare data, finance data, what have you, is to fully encrypt the data. It's a, it's a technique we, we describe as uh, encryption in use. We can talk about how that's different to encryption at rest perhaps, but the idea is that you're encrypting the, the data that you're storing uh, at the application level, field level the, encryption. What were those two things you said? Encryption, encryption. Encryption in use. In use. And encryption at rest. So historically, when when security people talk about encryption, they actually talk about two main classes of encryption. Encryption yep. in transit, so that's across the network. Yep. And encryption at rest, which usually just means- It's encrypted the, where it sits, yeah. The disk, you yep. know, the file system or the hard drive or what have you, right? Encryption in use means that the data's always encrypted. And the reason why in data in, uh, at rest doesn't actually solve this problem is you th think about something like a database. Yeah, in order matter. for a database- yeah, It doesn't matter. Use, it's like, it, it's okay if you have 15 locks on your apartment door, but if you just leave your door open or you just like take it in a suitcase and put it in the middle of a road somewhere and it's completely unlocked, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Well, think of it, to use that analogy, think of it, think of the database as like when the database starts up, you want to have a party at your apartment, right? Right. So you've got all these guests coming in and out. You just you just leave the door open, <laughs> right? And so then all those locks are kind of meaningless. That's right. that to me. That's encryption at rest. Right. So uh, in, encryption in use is mean means that the data is always encrypted. Um, but as you as you can imagine, that comes with some pretty major problems. And the examples that I use in healthcare healthcare examples are a good one. Although we 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 sell to all sorts of industries. If you've got a database full of patient records and you're using in-use encryption, you're doing a great job of protecting the data by doing that. But the issue is that, let's say you want to look up a patient, say, by their social security number. Got it. Or find all patients over the age of 40. Or even something as simple as, let's look at a dashboard and order all of the patients by their first or last name. If you're using encryption like that, none of those, none of those things are possible anymore. And so... Frankly, even though the technology is available, the vast majority of developers building applications don't use that kind of technology. And so SciStash essentially sits on top of the encryption in use problem. You can use open source technologies to add encryption in use to your application. Then SciStash sits on top. We call it a searchable encrypted index. And so that allows you to return the kind of query functionality that is required to build applications but at the same time, allowing your data to remain fully encrypted in use. And is is there a is there a DLT aspect to this? Is there a what's the right word? I spoke to this guy who runs this company called Semiotic.ai, and one of the things that he mentioned to me, I'm just trying to remember these terms, right? Was something called zk snark, right? This like mm -hmm. succinct non-interactive argument of knowledge, where like all of this stuff is encrypted, but what the math around this does is it takes this zero knowledge thing and says. 
I can then figure out how to do this. It sounds like this is something similar. Is that right? It's a, a related uh, technique. Yeah. So you would you would call this this whole kind of group of of technologies like a zero knowledge systems, yeah. zero knowledge proofs, or zero knowledge systems. So essentially, we can perform queries over encrypted data without revealing anything other than the fact that a query was made and potentially how many records were returned from that query. Nothing else gets revealed. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? It's cool, huh? It's, it's <laughs> fascinating. I mean, you, I'm obsessed with this problem. You, it's, mm. It feels, but in a way, you'd almost have to be obsessed with it, right? Because mm. software, like the nature of software is that it really takes obsession to be built properly, right? Like mm. nobody's, a, nobody's a great software developer on the side. You can't be because, the, because of the way it's written and it's deployed, just like you said, when you, when you saw these guys that they found this small hack into something in a way that you hadn't considered or your teams hadn't considered, the thing is you have to commit the right amount of time and energy to the protection side of this. Otherwise, things will slip through the cracks and then these hacks will be possible. Right. And the more you wrap around, and I'm going to use wrapping as like encryption so that people can really understand this, right? Depending on how you build that encryption into it, it, it again, somebody out there is going to think of something you haven't thought of if you got tired the night you were doing it or you got distracted by something. Like people forget that there's a human element to software development as well, right? Right. And every time you're zigging, they're zagging trying to figure out like how to get in. It's a never-ending battle, right? You're not like, I'm done. I've built it. I can now go home and just start selling. You, do you know what I mean? Absolutely. It doesn't yeah. end. And I think the other thing to remember there, this is a, it's a very subtle but such an important problem to talk about in, in the software development industry in general. Software developers are tend to be kind of oriented towards creation, creating great user experiences, creating something that's fast, whereas hackers or you know, nefarious folks on the internet tend to be oriented more towards destruction. Yeah, so it's and it's 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 a it's an easy trap to fall into when you're testing your own app. You don't go and do something stupid. You say, "Oh, well, that's not going to work. I don't want to that you know that, that sort of scenario. I didn't handle, so I'm not going to enter this kind of data. I'm not going to do something silly." Whereas an attacker comes in and they'll try and poke around and do stuff that you never expected or would never intend. Exactly. And, and again, the way I look at it is is like this. And tell me where I'm wrong. It's like, I want to go, I want to go slalom water skiing, right? Because I love that experience. And I go to a resort where they built this incredible boat that's built just for slalom water skiing. I get on the one ski, I get in the water, I get ready and they go, oh, sorry, one second. Before you do that, you got to come out and we've got to put a life jacket on you just to make sure that if you do fall, you don't die. And I'm like, oh God, now you're ruining my experience kind of thing, right? right? Yeah. You're not really, because in the end, you're just protecting me from anything bad that's going to happen to me. And the more I do it, the more comfortable I feel with like, yeah, no, I definitely need to be protected from this. And I look at cybersecurity in, in kind of the same way, right? You've got to build it in in a way so that it's seamless to the people that are using it. So it doesn't feel like it's getting in the way of their experience. Because you're right. It feels like there's this natural thing where developers want to build the best slalom water ski experience for you. And the guy who gives you the life jacket wants to make sure you don't die. And there's right, got to be a exactly. pull. There's got to be a pull. Different and push motivations. There, no? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think there's there's an interesting analogy in um, in Formula One. I'm a I'm a big motor racing fan, and I and I and I'm a huge Formula One fan, right? And so 
the the analogy i think is in the halo the halo uh for, for, for anyone that's listening that doesn't know the halo is a protective barrier that sits over the driver's head yep there was a there was a huge that guy of, lived that guy got right on, that right, guy, right right so, what was so that guy's the, name the, i can't remember so there was a, a driver in 20 2019 i think roman roman grosjean who went sailing into a barrier yeah. at 160 miles an hour or something the car literally split into the front half of the car with him in it went under the barrier caught fire fire and everyone's watching watching this on the tv going and just going dead the guy's dead how there is no way this guy could have survived no way yep and yet 30 seconds later or something he emerged he was he you know he was he, he got burns and he was not sure. totally unharmed but he was fine for all intents and purposes he was fine and then everybody after that was like thank god for the halo yeah. and there have been several other close calls since then yeah. and i think people have realized well that you know the medical people and the safety people probably the insurance people let's be honest were, yeah, yeah. were also saying let's have the halo yep. drivers and spectators didn't want it and then they finally realized actually this is a good thing now our, now our interests are actually aligned but is but isn't that the perfect example because and it's better than the water skiing one because here's the thing where people are moaning about it at the beginning like i don't want this stuff but then the dude's life gets saved and everyone's like, how can I get two of those? Right. Right. Exactly. But so how did we use what you're building into apps? Do you know what I mean? Like how does it actually work? Mm. So there's a few different things to think about. I mean, encryption provides you two main capabilities. Um, one is secrecy. Yep. And the other one is authenticity. We'll come back to authenticity in a moment. Secrecy is incredibly important. If you, let, let me give you one example. Um, if you've got a database, you know, uh, running in the cloud, very likely if, um, you know, it's more than a handful of people in the team, quite a lot of developers are going to have access to that database. They've got to, they've got to run maintenance on it, make sure it's backed up properly yep. and it's scaling and, you know, all the other things you have to do for the database. The problem is that now all of your developers not only have access to the infrastructure, the configuration, but they also have access to all of the data that's stored in that database. Right. So there's no way to separate access to the infrastructure from access to the underlying data. Um, this, this problem happens in virtually every organization. And then you take it a little bit further. Let's say that uh, someone in the team wants to run a, a large-scale test using, you know, I'll call it production-like data, real-world data, on their laptop before they send a feature into production, make sure that it's, you know, it, it, it's actually going to handle the load. Um, and so I've worked with many teams in the past that literally will they'll go and take a copy of the whole production database, put it on someone's laptop, and then try to run some real world tests. And oh if that data, right? It's, it, I mean, it's, it's, yeah. You understand why at some level this happens, but at the same time, can you know think of all the security people that are listening? Probably their heads are spinning, right? Yeah. It's so. Once it's on somebody's laptop, it's sort of like cats out of the bag. It's it's really really hard to control that. Uh, even even if no hackers are involved, it's just accidents happen, right? Wow. So by encrypting the data in the database, you're separating access to, to the, the infrastructure, infrastructure yeah. from access to the data itself. And so then a, a developer could could actually take an entire running copy of the database, run it on the laptop, so long as they don't have access to the encryption keys. Yep then they can't see that underlying data and yeah. they can do real world tests better so that's secrecy and we we think about hackers but you know that's an example of an in, uh, you know an insider threat right. malicious or otherwise then the other side of it which is 
one that we often don't think about is authenticity. So the classic example, you know, you learn this when you when you're studying cryptography at, at, at college. The, the classic example is Alice wants to send Bob a message. Alice says to Bob, "Hey, please pay some this person. Please pay Michael a hundred dollars." Right. The message gets intercepted along the way, and even though it's encrypted, just tweaking the right bits and bytes can change that message from "Please pay" instead of a hundred dollars. Please pay ten thousand dollars. Doesn't take very much to change that, and it's a very easy attack to uh, to to pull off. And how that plays out in practical scenarios. I'll give you one example. Um, we're all, probably most of your, your listeners are familiar with the concept of ransomware, but there's a, yeah. a class of ransomware attacks that we're starting to see more in the industry now, which is this idea of a tampering ransomware. And it plays out in healthcare situation, uh, healthcare you know, settings quite often, uh, or mostly should I say, where an attacker claims to have modified a record in your patient database. Let's say they've changed the dosage of 10 patients to what would be lethal doses. Yeah, we got it. You've got 100,000 patients in your database. You don't know, A, you don't know if the attack is telling the truth. Could be a false claim. Or B, if they are, which records have been changed? And because it's, you know, a lethal dose of whatever medication they're taking, this literally could be people's lives on the line. And so the idea of authenticity is, well, we can cryptographically verify, we can mathematically prove that this record has been tampered with or has not been tampered with. So, you know, if that situation arose, you could literally do a quick scan of the whole database and say, oh, no, no records have been tampered with. Look, nice try, buddy. See you later. You know, and, and that's, that's a real thing that could happen. That's amazing to me. But what, is, what do you do about that? Like, how do you build what you do into the app so that that type of stuff and this type of this class of things doesn't happen? So we we give uh, developers that are building systems the tools to um, to add this kind of capability to their application. So I'll, I'll give you one example. So we in the um, Ruby on Rails ecosystem, which is a very popular yep. application building framework, they can install a library called Active Stash. Active Stash um, allows them to enable what we call application level or field level encryption in their application, and then add a searchable index on top of that. So really it's 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 just about adding a few lines of code to your existing systems, running a few commands to encrypt it. Obviously, depending on how much data you've got, that can take between minutes and hours. But once that process is done, uh, Active Stash keeps the data encrypted um, and makes it easy for developers. So this must be super popular because basically what you're doing is you're extracting part of the value chain of the software development world and saying, don't worry about this piece of it. We'll build it for you and we'll build it for everybody, right? Because at some level, they're going to have to do this. If not, then their code is going to get like labeled not secure, I guess at some level. And this is kind of like, it's kind of like everything else, right? In the sense that everybody doesn't want to build their own payment layer. So they just outsource it to Stripe. Just like, right. just take care of that for me kind of thing. Like I could do it myself, but why? And I mean, exactly. in a way, it's like AWS at scale, right? We're like, I don't even want to build my own servers. Just take care of that for me. When I need more, I'll just pay you a little bit more money every month. Is that the same idea? Totally, yeah. And and I think there's another layer to it in, in cryptography. So whenever you're dealing with um, systems that are protecting data through encryption or uh, through, you know, secure key management, those kinds of those kinds of technologies. There's actually a really uh, hidden trap. There's a really bad hidden trap in that. 
it's this idea that if a developer has, say, downloaded, maybe it's an open source library and they want to learn how to use it to encrypt the system, the data in their system. Right. They're not quite sure how to use it. What's the first thing they do? They go and Google it. And then they probably hit a Stack Overflow post or something. Right. And they go, oh, cool. This first solution on the Stack Overflow post, it's got a little green tick saying, cool, that's the, that's the accepted solution. I'm going to copy and paste that code and I'm going to stick it in my code. How do we know that that Stack Overflow solution is actually secure? Yeah, I was going to say, I'm already nervous. <laughs> right? Yeah, and, I'm and already I, scared. There was a, a study done um, by some, some researchers, um, I believe it was, it was at Cornell, uh, a few years back, I, I can share you the link in the show notes if, if you want to add it. Please. Um, the the study was basically looking at how people were building applications, and they were testing to see if uh, the documentation for a bunch of libraries was sufficient for uh, even experienced developers to build secure solutions to the problem that they were trying to build. Right. And it turned out that in uh, you know some very high percentage, I think it was like seventy percent of cases. The solution they built, even using the documentation, was incorrect. Yeah. In other words, when I say incorrect, I mean insecure. Right. But I mean, this is the whole point, right? And I, I have this conversation with the people a lot now, and that is that these types, this type of sophisticated software, needs to get built for everybody, but everybody can't build it themselves, right? right. It's the same. Like I love having pizza, but I don't have a pizza oven in my house in a way. I'm sorry for making the dumb analogy, but I outsource that to <laughs> guys and gals that know how to make pizza. But right, they're also yeah. doing the research on it too, right? In other words, I can build my own security into my own software, but it's not the only thing on which I'm focused, right? So I can have my own cyber team, but it's just way more expensive than it is to outsource it to somebody on a SaaS basis that says, this is what I'm doing 24 hours a day, seven day a week. I'm obsessive about it. And it's the only thing I'm going to build. And I'm going to continue to do research as the hacks or what did you call them? I want to get this right. The attack vectors change and get more sophisticated. And I'm going to keep doing it. And that's kind of what you're paying me for at some level, right? It's not just what I built for today. It's the idea that I'm never going to stop caring about this. And you're going to have to, you can stop worrying about it. Is that fair? Totally. Yeah, absolutely. And, and there's, a, there's a, one of my favorite terms in, in my industry is, is what we call undifferentiated heavy lifting. So undifferentiated heavy lifting is any any hard work that you're doing. Let's say you're running a business. You're a, you're a founder and you've, you've got a startup or whatever. Any undifferentiated heavy lifting is work that you have to do or spend money on that doesn't give you any kind of competitive advantage. I love this. And, phrase. you know, Stripe is the is the classic example in the payment space. You're not going to go and build a payment gateway from, from, Why? You know, from day one. Yeah, you're not going to do that. I mean, no. Stripe is obviously the, the major player, but there's others as well. Sure. Um, it's like you to use your pizza analogy. Sure, it might be fun to create a pizza and you can make your own dough and so forth. But if you come up against Pizza Hut or Domino's or something, there's you know, maybe yours is better. No, no, it right. could even be better, but you're not going to be able to make it for less money, and you're not going to be able to to, to you know get it out to thousands of people uh, on Saturday night. Right? I'm not, like it's I'm not, not doing delivery. <laughs> right. Exactly. I'm not doing delivery. So sometimes building it in house is is really just a terrible idea. Yeah, I agree. Look, I feel like I could keep you for hours more to talk about this. I'm not sure if I'm more interested or you're more obsessed, but I really want to thank you for <laughs> doing <kind> this. <laughs> I think both, right? Dan Draper, the CEO and founder at CypherStash, thank you so much for doing this today. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate you. Thanks, Michael. I've enjoyed it.